Welcome to episode four of the OMG SMC podcast, the official podcast of St. Mary's College of California. I'm Zach Farmer. COVID-19, the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, whichever name you use, the virus has affected all of our lives. But how does the virus work? What does it do to the human body? How do we create a vaccine to combat it? In this episode, we will continue our Ask the Expert series with our panel of virologists and researchers who will dive into these topics. Roy Wensley, the Dean of the School of Science, will lead the discussion. Roy, take it away. Welcome everyone to uh, today for this panel discussion on uh, the, the science, uh, clinical issues, um, social impacts of COVID-19, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm uh, Roy Wensley, I'm the Dean of the School of Science. Um, I want to introduce to you the three panelists we have today. Um, and they'll just quickly say hi as I introduce them. We have Professor uh, Vidya Chandrasekharan from the Department of Biology. Hi, everyone. Uh, uh, Dr. Carl Butner, uh, who's an alum from St. Mary's. Hello. Uh, in biology, he's the current CEO and Chief Medical Officer of, of uh, Durham Biant. And we have uh, Professor Keith Garrison. Uh, hi, everybody. He's also a professor in the Department of Biology. Uh, Stefan Perez was supposed to join us today. He's an alum of St. Mary's who works at the CDC. However, he was uh, deployed uh, on an emergency basis uh, to deal with some COVID responses. And so he was unable to join us today. Um, so I think we've got uh, uh, some questions. You've, you've uh, those of you who have uh, registered also sent some questions in and. And I think most of the questions I will ask the panelists today will cover what you're interested in. Um, uh, if time permits at the end, we'll have some uh, opportunity for you to ask some questions and we'll go from there. So I'm gonna jump right in because we've only got an hour. It'll go fast, I believe. And I'm gonna start and I'm gonna uh, start with Dr. Garrison and just and just let's start out and ask what, what are the different types of viruses? Uh, what's unique about uh, this particular virus that causes uh, COVID-19 and, and why do some lead to pandemics and others don't? Good questions. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 is part of a family of viruses that's called coronaviruses. And they're called that because they have a crown of protein spikes that surround the virus particle. And it's those spike proteins that help the virus to get into the cell. It, it essentially docks with the cell that it's going to infect. Um, what makes the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the virus that causes COVID-19 unique is that even though it binds to the same receptor, that spike protein is new. So it binds to the receptor in a new way. And that new version of the spike protein likely came from bats in something that we call a zoonosis, um, when a virus moves from animals to humans. And because it's a, a new virus in that sense, the, the immune system really has no um, previous record of the virus to draw from because our immune system remembers previous infections. And, um, you know, I, th I think a lot of our predictions for the next pandemic that we were worried about really centered around flu viruses. And so, having the next pandemic come from a coronavirus was a bit of a surprise for people. So how did, so just, just to follow up quickly and anyone can answer this about, you just mentioned 
the flu virus. Well, what's the, I mean, what's the distinction between this type of uh, virus and something like this, this new novel coronavirus? How do they, I mean, how do they work differently and why are they so different? Well, different viruses will infect different types of cells mm -hmm. in the body. Um, Dr. Shonda Shakran might have some more to uh, talk about in that respect. Well, you know, also different viruses we have differing degrees of experience with, right? Like flu over a lifetime of getting flu and getting vaccinated, uh, you know, we may not have the ability to totally re immunologically recognize this season's flu, but we have some. Uh, whereas, you know, this is, that's one of the names of this is the novel coronavirus. It's a virus that uh, the human, human race has not had experience with. So essentially everybody is susceptible and, gotcha. and you know, that's, it's the, the novelty of this virus. And not all viruses are equally virulent to begin with. And uh, this one, perhaps by in, you know overly activating the innate or innate immune system, it it, it can be it's more lethal. Um, and, and so you know, viruses of different types you know vary in 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 their ability to cause disease related to how and how many cells they destroy and the host response they elicit. Thanks, Carl and, and Keith. So, Vidya, maybe you you can uh, talk about just the basic. What? How does this affect the body, and what you know? What causes these? You know, what are the? What's the biology of this of this uh, virus of the body? We started talking about. Um, how viruses infect the body. So one of the things we know about flu virus, as we were talking about just now, is that flu virus is very specific to the respiratory system. So unlike the flu virus, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus can affect other systems in the body because it that spike protein that Dr. Garrison was mentioning that is studied on this virus, that spike protein is the thing that the virus uses to enter, dock onto the cell. The protein on the cell surface that that spike protein docks onto is a protein that is known as ACE2, which is angiotensin converting enzyme two. This enzyme is actually an important enzyme for blood pressure regulation in the body. Hmm. And these receptors for ACE2 are present in the respiratory tract. So all the way starting from the nose into the trachea, going down the airways into the lungs. They are also present in the cardiac, in the, on the heart. They are present in the GI tract. They are present in the nervous system. So what you start seeing is this virus now has the ability to actually get an infect to all these systems because it has an entry point in all these places, hmm. which is also something that adds to the mortality and the severity of the symptoms that we see with this virus. So one of the first things that happens is if you think of just the respiratory tract, as we ingest or inhale this virus in the upper respiratory tract, the, the virus will bind to this ACE2 and, and then enter into the cell and start causing an inflammatory response. Now, the interesting thing about this virus is that in that initial stage, when it actually comes in first in contact with the cells, it does have a job of, it suppresses some part of our innate immunity. And what that does is increase the length of incubation period, right? Because our immune system is not responding to this virus as the virus has gotten and started multiplying already. 
So by the time our immune system kicks in, this virus is already, you've got a pretty good load, which mm. means the immune reaction is much more severe than just a basic common cold. So now when we talk about a mild symptom of it, right? When people start showing the symptoms somewhere between two to 14 days, they have a fever, a cough that, you know, we all sign off these things that we don't have one of these things to get into our spaces. So we have fever, we have cough. Um, there is, so typically upper respiratory, right? Sometimes a runny nose, sometimes sneezing. But the other things that some people report are things like nausea and vomiting and diarrhea, which is really because of the virus's effects on the, on the GI tract. Mm. And then, some of the people report muscle pain and fatigue, right? That could be an effect on the nervous system and we don't fully understand that component. Some people report loss of uh, smell, right? The loss of smell is because the virus actually kills some of the cells in the uh, nasal epithelium, which affects those and inflames them, which causes that. So you see it affecting many different systems. So that is the mild and moderate. 81% of the people have the mild and moderate. But then in some people, what happens is about three, four days after the onset of basic symptoms, the people start experiencing shortness of breath. They have difficulty breathing. And that is because now the virus, instead of just affecting the upper tract, is now affecting the lower respiratory tract, which is the alveoli, the air sacs, where we actually do gas exchange. And so what ends up happening is that once it infects those cells, those cells get inflamed. So they get fluid filled, they start dying. And as they start dying, cell debris builds in, pus builds in, right? So as some of these alveoli start getting inflamed, that is what leads to the pneumonia that we see mm. in patients. And so you can start noticing pneumonia and on a chest X-ray, it will look like it's fuzzy because some of these patients will now start having pneumonia. Now, in the early stages of that, there is no effect on the amount of oxygen that the body receives. So these people still have enough oxygen supply, so they don't need supplemental oxygen. They are classified as moderate in terms of the symptoms. Another couple of days later, depending on the person, you can then it leads to the most severe form. The severe form is where now the inflammation that is happening in the lungs can lead to this release of all the stuff from the immune system that is trying to kind of tap down the virus, but in also in the process, all the stuff that is released is causing inflammation in the blood, because it's in the bloodstream, it affects all the other organs. And so now the disease becomes more severe. That happens in about 14% of the patients. Those patients end up require their oxygen levels drop. They have very labored breathing, their heart rate goes up, their breathing rate goes up, and they need supplemental oxygen. And then when this inflammatory mediators are released in lot, this is called the cytokine storm. You may have heard this terminology. The cytokine storm is where all these inflammatory things that are really released to combat the virus end up damaging the tissues in the neighborhood. And that makes that causes the multiple organ failure that then results in death. And these people need mechanical ventilation because by then the lungs are not functioning. So this is kind of the timeline of how the disease actually progresses in us. Um, some people, even after they recover, you know, there are there are there's a fraction of people that even after three months after they test negative for viruses, the virus, they still show symptoms. 
They still have chest pain. They still have difficulty in breathing. They still have muscle aches and fatigue that is still associated with it. And we don't understand why that is, but it can stay on, linger on some people. So in some, what you're saying is our immune system actually can be hurting us. Yeah. So in the initial stages, it is helping us. And then as it tries to ramp up to counter this threat, that excess activation can actually cause the downfall that happens. Interesting. Interesting. The, the immune response that's supposed to happen early in infection is not happening until later phases. And because it's happening too late, the virus has already sort of gotten ahead in the race and mm -hmm. the, immune, the immune response ends up causing more problems at that point in the course of infection. Well, thanks. Thanks, Dr. Sendersakron. And, and yeah, there's one term that we might want to define there. She mentioned the innate immune system, and that's not a term that the general public is often familiar with. In reality, there are two big branches of the immune system. There's the innate and the adaptive. The innate is the most primitive in that virtually all life on Earth has some form of an innate immune system where it's only vertebrates that have the adaptive. And the adaptive is the one that makes antibody and has immunologic memory, uh, whereas the innate is more the first-line therapy. And the coronaviruses as a group have evolved a strategy to evade that first line of therapy, the innate immune system. And, um, and, and that's one of its... Uh, one of the, the ways it differs from flu and other respiratory viruses. Thanks. So, so uh, Dr. Breeder, following up on some of this, one of the, in terms of just understanding, of, you know, how we know um, that we have the virus or have had the virus, what, what are, what are these different types of antibody tests, the, the, the viral tests, right. how do they work and what kind of indications do each of them give us? There, there's a lot of confusion over this, and it's really not that difficult. <laughs> there, there are basically two major types of tests. Uh, one test is seeking to understand whether uh, a person has the virus, an active viral infection, by, you know, uh, by detecting the presence of the virus. And the other is to detect an antibodies to the virus. Uh, and it gets confusing because antibodies can also be used to detect the virus. So uh, first of all, are you actively infected? And there are two main ways of doing that. One, detecting the virus, and you could culture the virus, but in this day and age, it's more common to do not culture the virus, but to use a thing called uh, PCR or polymerase chain reaction uh, to detect viral DNA or viral genetic material. And the viral genetic material is there, you assume the virus is there. Um, and so that's sort of the gold standard for active infection is the PCR looking for the viral, the COVID, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, genetic material. There's also a rapid test that you know, the part of a virus that stimulates an immune response is called an antigen. And you can raise antibodies to the virus and use those antibodies to detect the virus. So there are, are tests to, for detection of the virus based on using an antibody uh, to identify the presence of the virus. So their viral detection methods are asking the question, does this person have the infection right now? And as with all tests, 
these tests have false, false positives and false negatives and false negatives are more of a problem than the false positives and they are a bit dependent on the quality of the sample that's acquired. Mm -hmm. Then the testing your blood for the presence of antibodies to this virus is a way of measuring whether you have had a recent or past infection. It usually takes several weeks for us to mount an antibody response. So if you, you become symptomatic today, you may not have detectable antibodies in your system yet. So the antibody test, the viral test is good at answering the question, does this person have a viral infection now? The antibody test is good at asking, have you had it in the past? And it's particularly good for what are called seroepidemiologic studies, which a number of those are going on around in California and in the US where you draw blood from a large number of people, test them for antibodies to get a better handle on the denominator of how many people are infected since the spectrum of disease with this virus ranges from death to asymptomatic. And so uh, the and you know, detecting antibodies in the blood will tell you whether you've had previous infection. If you have had that, you, you may have some degree of immunity, uh, but they're also very valuable for epidemiologic studies to understand the spread transmission and mm -hmm. how many people have been infected. Thanks, that's great. I think the two, two important questions and we'll get to both of these next um, have to do with thinking about you know how do we how do we protect ourselves from this? And there, there's two areas where we have to think about um, um, our our response medically, for the therapeutics. That is, what can we do to treat people? And the other is the vaccine. So let me just first ask. Um, I'll ask this to Dr. Sandersakeran. Are there therapeutics? What are they? What what therapeutics have been demonstrated to be effective? Um, in, in treating people who actually come down with COVID-19? The question to are there therapeutics, yeah. that itself is like an inconclusive okay. answer to that particular question. Mm -hmm. There are lots of things in trials, lots of things that have been tried. I think that's kind of what we have. Um, if this is so new, some of these have been only tried on COVID patients. They haven't been, you know, and, and typically they're used NIH guidelines. NIH has very explicit guidelines on when and what therapeutics are available and when they are recommending the use of it. So pretty much all the ones I'll be talking about are really recommended for use in patients who are in that severe category mm -hmm. where they need supplemental oxygen. Their oxygen levels have dropped enough that they are recommending it. Um, and, and the benefits in the clinical trials have also been seen only in those patients at mortality rate or recovery rate. You don't see much in the early stages. So there's no convincing data for the mild and the moderate for those drugs. So the one drug that I think all of us have heard about, this is the antiviral. So one strategy that we have is some way to stop the virus itself from replicating and from dividing and multiplying in our cells and causing problems. So the one drug that we've all heard about is remdesivir. Mm -hmm. Remdesivir is a viral antiviral agent. And the way this works is it actually blocks the enzyme that is needed for viruses to divide, to copy their DNA, copy their nucleotides, right? So what it ends up doing is that it ends up um, blocking the virus from dividing, which then prevents the viral load from increasing and then can block further infection. Okay. Um, 
there are side effects to it, uh, nausea and constipation, some simple side effects. Um, it has been approved for or use, or it has been shown to be effective in things like SARS and MERS, so other coronaviruses, it has been effective. Under the in SARS-CoV-2 trials, what they found is that remdesivir does a good job in decreasing the recovery time, hospitalization time for the critically ill people, where it drops that time from say 15 days to 11 days, or 18 days to 11 days. So there is a there is a quicker recovery that they can see in those patients, but there is not much data for the early stages. The second thing that people have tried are things uh, again we may have heard of it is like convalescent uh, plasma, where you can take the, uh, the plasma from people who have contracted the virus. Some of these tests, again, sometimes they've looked for whether they had antibodies. Other times they haven't looked at the antibody titer. So it's very hard to know if that makes a difference, um, you know, if the convalescent plasma is really effective. But that's another way, is that they take the plasma from the people who have been infected, and then they go in and they in inject it. Again, this is for critically ill, because again, plasma comes with its own risks they are not giving it to the mild and the moderate. Um, the third thing that people think about are steroids like dexamethasone. That is another one that has been, um, that is being used. Again, the, it's again given to the critically ill, the people who have had a drop in oxygen levels. And the, what a steroid does, what dexamethasone would do is to uh, actually suppress the anti-inflammatory, uh, suppress the inflammatory response. So it, it ends up being an anti-inflammatory. So this is really effective in that last stage where the immune system is going crazy and putting out so many of these inflammatory things that increases the damage. Something like dexamethasone can suppress that. Mm. There are a few things that are in trials like the monoclonal antibody cocktail, the ones that are specific to SARS-2, uh, SARS-CoV-2, there are some antibodies that are in trials. There are also trials under uh, uh, in process about some HIV drugs that are being repurposed to see if they would work with SARS-CoV-2, um, antiviral HIV drugs. And then there are some antagonists, some blockers, some things that can block the inflammatory response in other ways by binding to some of these molecules those are also underway in testing and clinical trials. So none of those are approved for use, patient use as yet. So, so there's really, there's not a lot of hard evidence for any particular therapeutic, it sounds like that. No, um, that the, the trials are, tri there are just few trials with small populations and most of them are, have been done in hospitalized patients and the critical ill severe to critically ill category. I mean, currently there are over 500 clinical trials going on here. You, you can think of therapy break, broken into several different buckets. One is to stop viral replication. Remember viruses replicate by taking over our machinery to make their progeny in that uh, that's you know, how they, they, they replicate. And then there's a, a immunologic approach where you're trying to uh, do passive immunity, give somebody uh, immunity. And then there's general supportive care, and that's the use of oxygen and ventilators and extracorporeal oxygenation. And on the, and that would be called you know sort of general medical care and supportive care. And that has improved greatly. You know the the case fatality rate has fallen off because the docs in the trenches have learned better how to manage these patients, how to recognize, you know, to check their oxygen levels sooner and inter intervene sooner. 
In general, I would agree most of the publicity with the antivirals have been with late stage patients. But in general, if you look at antiviral therapy, highly effective antiviral therapy, you know, consistently only works if you start early. Uh, viruses do not divide. Viruses grow by one step growth curve. By that, I mean with bacteria, one bacteria become two, two become four. Whereas with viruses, one virus infects the cell and then releases thousands of other viruses all at once. So earlier you intervene in, in that replication, more of an effect you're gonna have. So historically antiviral therapy, you know, the effective antiviral therapy we have has only been effective when given early, not late. Uh, late in the disease, the patient's problem with, with COVID is less about the viral replication than it is the response of the body to the virus that's there and to the tissue damage that has been done. So, um, yeah, it, it's um, it's challenging. And and, you know, and I can I can body is essentially a man-made convalescent plasma. So they 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 get yeast or bacteria to make and the antibodies that you'd want to have in convalescent plasma. And it has the advantage of, uh, it can have antibodies that are very effective and at known quantities, and you don't have the risk of bloodborne pathogens with the monoclonal antibodies that, that you have with uh, convalescent plasma. And they use a cocktail of these monoclonal antibodies because they can have antibodies with different affinities and hit different parts of the virus. And I can see how it's it's counterintuitive to use a um, immunomodulatory therapy like corticosteroids to try to bring down the immune response in the setting of a virus infection. It would seem like you'd always want to be boosting the immune well, response, let's, but let's be clear. but it it Purpose. reaches a point where the immune response becomes your biggest problem. Yeah, but it's less to be immunosuppressive than it is to be anti-inflammatory. What they need to turn down is the inflammation that's causing destruction. So now I think one of the, the thanks for, for those thinking about the therapeutics, which we hear about, I know all the time. Um, the, the, big, the big question here is about the vaccine, right? Everyone is, is you know, awaiting a vaccine. Lots of people are still not so sure they're, they were, they'd even taken if it came out, but I just want to understand how do vaccines work? And in particular for the virus that causes the COVID-19, um, how does it work compared to other kinds of uh, vaccines that, that have been developed? I'll just, my in my head, my question is, I know we have vaccines for like the measles, which, which you get once in your lifetime and it works. We have certain other viruses that you can't really get a vaccine for because it just mutates constantly and so it can't keep up. So what's what, what's the the likelihood of something developing here? And Dr. Garrison, I'll just have you start with thinking of, talking to the vaccine question. Our, our typical vaccine approach is to give um, pieces of the virus to people in order to allow that adaptive part of the immune system that Dr. Butner was talking about to kind of have practice at responding to the virus. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a fire drill for the immune system. And once the immune system knows what to do, it develops memory. And then having that memory response is a lot faster and a lot more efficient. So 
that's the the typical approach to developing a vaccine. So like that's the way that the measles virus works or the the measles vaccine. Yeah. That's the way that the polio vaccine that's used in the U.S. works. Um, and the ability to give a vaccine like that and provide lifelong immunity that sort of depends on on the vaccine. Um, polio and measles appears to give lifelong immunity, whereas influenza vaccination, you, you need a new vaccination every year. And that's because of changes in the virus that occur every year, as well as waning immunity um, as it, you get further and further away from the vaccination. Um, in the case of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the um, vaccine candidates that are furthest along in the process use a different technology where they're delivering RNA from the virus in order to give instructions to your cells to produce pieces of the virus and then provoke an immune response that way. And this is a different way of uh, approaching vaccination. Yeah, Roy, to answer your question, it's a little bit, you know, not all viruses are equally immunogenic, not all viruses are genetically uh, stable. And so, you know, the, the great successes we've had, you know, mumps, measles, rubella, chickenpox, you know, those are, you know, very immunogenic, the vaccines stimulate very good immune responses, and, and um, the, the viruses have uh, remained genetically stable. Uh, you know, the, the flu vaccine, you know, is constantly, um, you know, changing it to the way it looks to the immune system. So we, we need different uh, vaccines. So, you know, there's still, you know, great hope for, um, for in general, you know, the viruses can be classified by the type of genetic material I have as DNA viruses and RNA viruses. And, you know, most of, many of our successes have been more with the DNA viruses and these, especially respiratory RNA viruses have been more challenging. Um, I mean, in terms of the typical timeline, I mean, I know everyone's very concerned about this in particular, you know, uh, uh, which in the United States, we haven't quite been as, you know, eager to get so, a vaccine developed in recent history. Um, I mean, what is the typical timeline for for a for vaccine development, and and uh, is this are we getting better at it? Maybe is a question I might ask in terms. Well, of, I mean, it's pretty. You know, easy. I've been involved in a number of vaccine development efforts, and it, it's pretty straightforward. You break it down into the parts. You know, the first part are immunogenicity studies and safety studies, where you make a vaccine and give it to people to do first uh, peek at safety and to see if what level of immune responses you get. Mm -hmm. But then the the big um, the challenges are the efficacy trials. You know, with, you know, think about with drugs, you take six pe sick people and give them a drug and see if they get better. Uh, with vaccine trials, you have to give it to healthy people and wait to see if they acquire the infection. And so it, it, it's time consuming there. And to some extent, the, how long it takes is dependent on the rate of infection within in your uh, study population as, as well as the uh, efficacy of the vaccine. And uh, you know, I, I think how to do vaccines, we know how to do that well. And I think, you know, 
the current COVID vaccine programs are going on. And the big thing giving them a boost is usually commercial, your companies developing vaccines don't manufacture it until they know they have a product. And what the government has done is say, we'll buy it from you. <laughs> and, you know, it, which has enabled them to fund the manufacturing of it. And, and manufacturing these vaccines are, are tricky for a number of technical details like you know they have to be able to make it three times in a row and other other technical things so you know i i think there's every reason to believe uh the production uh the development and production of the covid vaccine is moving along quite well uh, what i have a bigger concern about is everybody thinks this will be over once there's a vaccine and uh, um, i think you need to think about those vaccines and then their antivirals uh, a vaccine is aimed at decreasing the number of people infected and perhaps even uh, the, the severity of the disease by lessening the viral burden of those that are infected. Uh, but the antiviral therapy is aimed at more preventing people from dying. Uh, and we actually need both a vaccine and we need effective, safe you know, therapies if, if we're going to promptly control this. You know, as illustrated by HIV, uh, we still don't have a vaccine for HIV, but at least in the developed world with people with access to healthcare, uh, you know, it, it's well, well cared for based on antiviral therapy. So mm -hmm. it isn't, do we need a vaccine or do we need an antiviral drug? The answer is we need both. One to decrease number of people infected and the other to decrease number of people that are dying. Uh, and if we could decrease, greatly impact the mortality rate, all kinds of things open up. So I actually was sent a question here from someone who's, who's, who's watching. Uh, Michael Crockett is uh, asking, this is a kind of a deep uh, technical question, but th this has to do with the cytokine storm that a couple of you have already mentioned. Uh, he, he refers to us, there is a, an approved anti-cytokine um, therapy, I guess he calls it MAB. I'm not sure what that is. Monoclonal antibody. And okay, it it, it uh, um, says it doesn't appear to have an effect in dampening or improving patients who are showing severe symptoms, and he's just wondering what's the explanation. I think um, so. I've been looking at some of those data that came in from some of these monoclonal antibody trials, and you know, one of the things is these trials are done on very small population, right? And and with a uh, it depends on the the severity of the disease as well. And there wasn't anything, I don't think they looked at whether the particular cytokine was upregulated and how much it was upregulated and what was it as a fraction of that big cytokine storm effect that we're seeing. So the data are not robust enough for us to make a call. And I think Genentech is going, Roche is trying for another round of studies that is more controlled with a larger population to address whether these antibodies actually work or not work. I think the essentially the jury is out on it. There is something that says there's a minimal effects, another study that says there is no effect. Mm. So stages, kind of how I see it. There's still more going on. Um, in, in, in just thinking about the, our, our future and what's gonna, you know, how we're, how we're going to, uh, be able to, you know, uh, live in some sense of normalcy again. Some, uh, I wanted to look at some questions having to do with that. But um, so maybe I'll ask first, like just your opinions of 
what is what would be better to have? And I know both are obviously having both of these things will be great, but is it is it going to be more effective to have a, a highly effective therapeutic, a highly effective treatment, or is a um, would a good vaccine um, be our our best solution? Which we of those need both. There's not one thing that's going to solve this, and yeah. we, we need both of those. We need something to decrease the number of people infected and then decrease the mortality rate of those that are infected. So it's not either or, the answer is okay. both uh, because they do very different things. What's the, uh, go ahead. And if I had to pick between the two, I would actually pick the third one, which is masks, social distancing, better behavior, yeah. <laughs> because neither one of these, even with the vaccine, right? The access as Dr. Butner was pointing out, you know, all of us getting it, is going to be an issue and when do we get it and and how long that immunity lasts. So some part of it is going to be that how we approach the problem. Um, and when we talk about the severity of the disease, I mean, most of 81% of the people end up in the mild and moderate category. So um, so the therapeutics is really helpful for the when people progress, that seems to be where we are but that early management is more beneficial. But a highly effective safe, and if it was oral antiviral, even those that with mild disease could take it and decrease their period of infectivity. Mm -hmm. And I don't disagree that, you know, you know, as the head of the CDC said, you know, masks are probably more effective than the vaccine, but uh, uh, how, how they became a political statement is one of the many mysteries of this vaccine, of this uh, epidemic. And, and I think that's one of the lessons that we've learned from HIV is that by getting viral loads down to very, very low levels, you can not only manage the disease, but you can also limit transmission. And I think that's really important. I mean, I think that's what, in terms of getting back to some sense of normalcy, that's what we're, we're wondering, right? How do we, you know, how do we minimize that, the transmission, right? Um, and so in that vein, maybe uh, Dr. Shadrasekhar, you can talk to the point of what are all the known risk factors um, for, for number one, you know, getting the, the, the virus, first of all, um, being, um, and then developing the COVID-19 response. And then, um, you know, what are some ways to, to, to minimize those? Um. One of the things we know about this virus, and we've all heard this, uh, is that it affects uh, disproportionately or has severe disease in people that are over 65 years old. So mm -hmm. for example, if you look at the data on CDC, what it says is that people over 65 years um, account for about 15% of the cases in the US. But in terms of fatality and mortality and severe disease, they account for 80% of the mortality that is associated with the disease. So we clearly realize that age is a factor. And age ends up becoming a factor partly because, um, you know, a, a lot of this virus's effects, the inflammatory response that we see um, are because, you know, you see these blood vessels becoming a little more permeable, so there is leakage. And so some of that did inflammate, that those changes are already happening in us as we age. So having the virus in there kind of pushes a process that's already ongoing. So that is one. The second things, the other things that we see that seem to associate, you know, when we look at the mortality rates and the severity of the disease, 
people call it comorbidities. What, what you see there are things like diabetes, hypertension, other pulmonary diseases seem to be associated with higher risk of severe disease. Mm -hmm. And obesity is another one. So in some ways, some of these other factors, um, probably because the immune system is already somewhat activated in these patients, there is some vascular problems already, those tend to push the patients more quicker to a, going from a mild moderate to a severe condition. In, in terms of thinking about um, the uh, risk factors not associated necessarily with an individual's health, but with um, just, you know, how we spend time with each other, how we interact with each other, what are some of the, um, the more, I guess I'll call, call more uh, risky things to be doing in terms of tra uh, transmission. Well, that's easy, not wearing a mask and not social distancing. Uh, it's a quite proven, you know, uh, it's been, it's, it's, it's absolutely well known. Um, and, you know, that's why, you know, the outbreaks that are happening are happening that, you know, so from stemming from social uh, and family gatherings where people are not uh, wearing masks and social distancing. And, and the long um, incubation period, the two to 14 days, or, and the fact that a lot of people are asymptomatic, mm -hmm. right? that combination makes it really difficult to know if I am infected or not, which is why we need to limit some of these other risk factors. Yeah, but even those that become symptomatic, they're, they're the, what, three days or so, more or less, that before they become symptomatic when they're highly infectious. So uh, even if everybody became, everybody infected became symptomatic, that, that window from infection until the symptoms begin, they're highly infectious. And mm -hmm. so you have that with a whole assortment of viruses. As, is that, I mean, it sounds like that's a, a typical thing with a virus. Those of us who don't feel sick can still be contagious is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a certain level of replication that makes you infectious, but there needs to also be a, a certain level of tissue destruction before you become symptomatic. And there's that spot there where it's replicated enough to be contagious, but not yet enough to uh, create symptoms. I also know that thinking about this, um, the social impacts of this, that um, communities of color are being impacted much at much greater rates than than other communities. What, uh, how do, what, what are some of the reasons for that? Um, well, what can be done? I think about there are two things going on here. You know, one, it's the social injustice thing, uh, actually, you know, greater prevalence of comorbidities and and less access mm -hmm. to healthcare, but. You know, with any virus, virtually any virus, uh, you infect an outbred population, uh, uh, there'll be a, there's a spectrum of disease. And that spectrum of disease can be influenced by un, yet unknown host factors. Um, and, you know, for example, there's, you know, a couple of compelling studies that say, you know, uh, type O uh, blood type is less likely to get bad disease than type A and B. And it isn't that your blood type necessarily causes that, but it's a genetic marker and that people of different you know, genetic backgrounds will have, you know, could have different susceptibilities 
uh, to you know to different you know to disease severity. So you know, one there's the natural variation in the spectrum of disease in an outbred population, but unfortunately there are also the social issues of uh, of uh, increased comorbidities and um, and lack of uh, healthcare access in in some segments of our population. So if we, if we look on the CDC website again, and there is a COVID race data tracker, which is also a very useful tool to try and look at the socioeconomic pieces and how much they influence the prevalence of this disease in certain population. And what the CDC data shows is that um, African-Americans, um, Hispanic Latinx people, and American Indians, Alaska Natives are almost three times more likely to be infected with COVID compared to the white population. And the hospitalization rate, which is stunning, is that they are almost five times as likely to end up in the more severe category and require hospitalization compared to the white population. Interestingly, some of the death rate numbers come closer to the white population. The African-Americans still are about twice as likely to die from coronavirus as opposed to uh, the white population. So, so there is data and, and there have been a few studies of late kind of under, looking at what is the underlying cause. Is it genetics? Is it environmental? What is it that gives this sort of, um, this sort of differential, the disparity that we see? There was one study which is very new. I think it was published in August or so. Um, it's done in Louisiana in their healthcare system, which has about 30% Black uh, people as part of their health network and 70% Caucasians. And what ended up happening is that 70% of their COVID cases were African-Americans mm -hmm. and 70, 70%, around 70% of the deaths were African-American. And, and again, what they came up with is there were two things. Some of the clinical markers that were being presented in the African-American population were different, you know, in terms of which ones were coming up higher, was different from what you see in a white population, suggesting that there might be a genetic hyperactivate, something in the immune system that might be different. Um, the, but the, a lot of things they found was that there were lots of comorbidities. Many of these uh, African-Americans lived in low-income conditions, um, poor nutrition, having being essential workers, so had to be out there working with lots of people. They also had to uh, live in crowded spaces. And all of those could be other aspect, as Dr. Butner mentioned, that needs to be looked at to really fully understand the comorbid, the, the spectrum of the disparity. And another thing that came up for the Latinx population is the um, lack of information. Right or or the there there needs to be better information dissemination mm -hmm. to help with um, with managing that early stages. So the people weren't going to the hospital or weren't managing it in those early stages, which then led to more hospitalization at the later time. So and these are these are all reasons that the vaccine studies are working very hard to recruit a diverse population because it's very important to understand efficacy across the broad diversity of our population. Well, yeah. And the logistical thing is, you know, ideally you do the vaccine at the highest risk of acquisition um, for a whole variety of reasons. Right. You do it in a very low attack rate, the population takes 
takes longer. So I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna ask at least one more question, but I, I also want to know those who are who are watching us. Um, yeah, you can submit some questions, and and we'll have a few minutes here toward the end to uh, to answer any of the particular questions you might have. Just so you know, and we can't you know we can't give specific advice about county you know decisions, state government decisions being made, um, specific medical advice, things like that, but. Anything, anything following up on some of the things we've been talking about would be great. Um, I mean, the, I think the million dollar question, and I, I know I'm asking this, this is speculation for all of us to think about. Um, I really appreciate, first of all, hearing from the three of you because you, you, you really have the, the scientific knowledge of how these things work and, and what's being done um, to combat it. But I mean, just thinking about how do we, how do we approach opening our, our society up Right. I mean, we're, we're already, I mean, I know government plans have been developed to look um, at how we begin to open up particular businesses, particular activities. And, and I, I'm going to admit my selfishness, I'm most interested in like, how do we begin to open up classrooms and things like that again? What, what kinds of minimal things are needed before that becomes um, uh, a safe activity? Well, I mean, Everybody wants to know what they can do just to protect their little part of the world. The, yeah. the biggest driver of it, what's the overall, you know, rolling seven-day average of number of new cases? Uh, you know, less there is in, in, in the U.S., the less there is in California, the less there is in Contra Costa County, and the less there is in Moraga, easier it is to do things. So the number one driver of this is, is the, the rate, you know, the seven-day average of new cases. How much is of you know, how many active cases of disease are in the community. And first and foremost, that number needs to be down. Yeah. And then once you get that number down, then you know, all the things they're doing on campus now, which have, you know, last I heard proved they work of, uh, of you know, doing you know, surveillance testing, uh, you know, making sure people, if they're sick, uh, self-quarantine and availability of testing and wearing masks and social distancing, that will enable it. But if, all that stuff on a background of a low seven-day average new cases will work. Yeah. All that other stuff in a small part of the world with the larger part of the world ever increasing number of cases, it's not going to be as effective. So, I mean, pandemics are part of the human experience. Uh, uh, there was a little anomaly in human history from the time polio vaccine was widely uh, used in, in, in the industrialized world until HIV came on, on scene, there was a small period of time there where otherwise healthy young people didn't die of infectious diseases. The reality is that's an anomaly and that mm -hmm. epidemics and pandemics have been part of our experience and we know how to address them. And what needs to be done is the seven day, you know, average of new cases needs to be driven down and that will allow people to open up and, and be safe again. It's not that hard. I also think, um, I think we will also, each of us will have to take personal responsibility because to some extent, right, for us to be able to open up St. Mary's and get classes in, we have to be cognizant of social distancing and be cognizant of the cleaning and things in our own spaces, right? So even if, as if the cases are just low, not high, not, and we can open up, 
right? Because we can we can see the roaring back of the pandemic in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. And that is really again a something for us to be mindful of is how if we open it, what responsibility do I take? It means the state has re- released the responsibility, but it then falls on me to make sure that I am making sure I'm taking all the steps to keep it safe for me and for everybody around me. Yeah, it does, go ahead, Keith. Oh, I was just gonna say that I think continuing to work on testing methodologies that are both rapid and accurate, because generally it seems to be sort of a trade-off between those two factors. So I think being able to do both Continue, uh, continuing to work on developing tests that may be capable of both would be very beneficial too. Do, do any of you know what is, I mean, there, I know that there's the two tests, I think um, Dr. Buechner mentioned the, the, the rapid test and then the, the PCR uh, test for, for active, looking for active uh, infection. What, what, is the, what is the rate of false results for those tests? Uh, there aren't just two tests. There are multiple ones in each category, and it ranges dramatically. And I don't have that at my fingertips, okay. but uh, you know, some are better than others. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you know, some are given emergency uh, approval, uh, emergency use authorization without being thoroughly vetted, and. Wow. Uh, and the actual numbers of false positive and false negative rates in some of these tests may not even be widely known. So, mm. um, you know, the uh, the push to get testing out there resulted in, in in not knowing as much about the performance of these tests as as we might like. And and those PCR based tests are able to pick up low levels of infection, they're very sensitive, but they take longer. Mm-hmm. Whereas those more rapid tests that are picking up the viral antigens will be faster, but it's going to take you a while, as Dr. Buechner said, to reach that point in the infection where you're producing enough antigen to be able to be picked up by those tests. Well, QPCR can be done pretty quick, but there's actually mm-hmm. a limitation on the amount of equipment and how many, you know, the hardware and reagents, you know, limit it to the actual test, uh, you know, easily done overnight, uh, but, uh, you know, not within minutes, like, you know, the, the very rapid one, but um, yeah, overnight would still be actionable and at a price where it can be done more widely, uh, <laughs> $25 to $150 a pop, you know, limits you know, it's use and access. Yeah, cost really is the third part of it. Speed, accuracy, and cost really would be. I know that we're spending quite a bit of money this this year on testing our students on campus. Um, it's not cheap. Um, lack of the general public understanding that it, all tests have false positives and false negatives and none of them are perfect. And right. somehow people have a hard time uh, accepting that. <laughs> we want certainty, don't we? <laughs> yeah. I, I think another thing to overlay on that is that with those uh, antibody tests, their ability to accurately predict a positive for the antibody test in terms of, you know, when when the test says you have antibodies, do you really have antibodies is dependent on how much the disease has already circulated in the population. Mm. The, the tests essentially get better 
as the percentage of individuals in the population gets higher. When it's still really low or relatively low, the probability of error gets really high unless you have a super, super, super accurate test. Someone on the who's who's right. as you ask a, a question, which uh, this is more for uh, I think um, Dr. Shani Sacron and 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 uh, Dr. Garrison. Um, is it possible to get some of our science students involved in some kind of COVID studies or responses? I mean, I don't think I mean having them get the disease, but thinking about what they can do uh, in terms of helping understand this pandemic better and contributing to it, to the solutions, I'll say. Well, I know this is one of those, well, I was going to say once in a lifetime events, but I don't know whether this is a once in a lifetime event, but I know certainly it's going to change my research program. A mm -hmm. lot of the work that, that I've been doing has been involved in studying corals as a model system to understand that, that ancient innate immunity. Mm -hmm. And I think understanding that it's, it's some of those processes that go wrong early on in SARS-CoV-2 infection that can lead to severe COVID-19 disease, I'd really like to start exploring that more in the future when we can get back to campus and lab research. There's lots of resources that are more computation-based, which are definitely something like at an undergraduate institution. You know, one of the reasons we, we had thought about trying to get into this, could we develop something with you know, SARS-CoV-2 testing or help with that testing when UC Berkeley started that initiative. But the, the problem is this is a, this is a virus that is um, transmitted through the air. So working with it gets tricky so we don't expose our students to something. And so something like a computational approach where we can look at some of these proteins because there's a lot of data and start thinking about where potential drugs might bind and look through databases would be a great way to further the research and not get them in risk zones. Learn more about the St. Mary's School of Science at stmarys-ca.edu slash science. Thanks to Drs. Carl Butner, Vidya Chandrasekharan, and Keith Garrison, and to Dean Roy Winsley for leading our discussion. This episode was co-sponsored by the Office of Alumni Engagement and the School of Science. Music by Brad Dundalski. This episode was recorded and edited from our work-from-home studios in the Bay Area. St. Mary's College of California is located in Moraga, California, just 30 miles east of San Francisco. I'm Zach Farmer. Thanks for listening.